we've got a church conference next Wednesday, so this is a, I didn't want to start something in Genesis that'll take about two or three weeks to get through the right way, so we're going to park in Psalms tonight, Psalm 95, and this is a psalm that is applicable to everyone, especially those who are in Christ, everyone who loves God and are called according to His purpose. A psalm that, as we prayed a minute ago, shows us how to worship the Lord. If you got a, a if you wanted to title this, I, I've got it titled on my 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 notes here: How to Worship the Lord. So, let's read the psalm, and then we'll spend a few minutes talking about it. And uh, may God bless the reading of His Word. It says this: Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, and as, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly, they shall not enter my rest. Not a, not a real happy ending to that psalm, but uh, we'll see. It does show us how to worship God. You know, I'm reminded every now and then about the carelessness with which our society uses language. For example... On the internet, you don't have to spend much time on the internet to understand that people have a big problem with this. <laughs> there, there, there. It's spelled three different ways, used three different ways. But people have no idea how to use those words in our, in our society. Uh, today. Um, <laughs> I see it all the time on the internet. Uh, also, people have a really hard time, I'm finding out, the, long, the older I get, with apostrophes. People don't know how to use apostrophes uh, at the right time anymore. Maybe they never did. I don't know. There's a different kind of carelessness with our language that is uh, vulgarity, obviously. Um, you know, you've got those words that you can't say on TV, although now they let you say those words on TV and they don't really care. Um, but it, it's what the Bible calls coarse jesting, uh, and, and it's unbecoming for anyone who uh, claims Christ. The, the, the Apostle Paul tells us to let no unwholesome word come out of our mouths, uh, except that which is meant to edify. Um, there's another type of carelessness which deals, though, with everyday language and nouns and adjectives and the way we describe things. And that's what I want to kind of talk about as we lead into our psalm tonight because the word great is an example 
of, of, of something that's really misused. We are very careless as a society with how we use the word great. We are so quick to label something as great. It could be a movie. It could be a song. It could be something we eat. I ate at Pick and Pig a few minutes ago, and it was it was very good. It was not... I'm not going to tell you... <laughs> thought about calling you on the way. Well, as a sports fan, oh, as a sports call. fan, you know, the Carolina Panthers, my team, they start they start uh, the season tomorrow night, and they were in the Super Bowl, and last year you could say they had a great season. But we see that phrase thrown, I mean, I mean, all the time, this is great, that's great, and we begin to use that word so much that nothing really is great anymore. Because what great means it, it is to stand out by comparison to other things. It is to be a superlative. And, you know, Romans 1, right, in, in Romans 1, Paul writes about how the depraved man substitutes the worship of God with the worship of things created. So really, how we begin to misjudge things, and even the way the language we use, is a byproduct of our sinful nature. We begin to, to not see things as they really are. We begin to... Yeah, a sinful nature which we have from birth is bent on being superlative in our praise, which in the end is, is for things that are not praiseworthy. Um, in Philippians 4 verse 8 we read, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But really, we tend to become so jaded even in the church, that when something comes along deserving of being called great and, and considered great, we tend to be ho-hum about it instead. But this is not a new problem. Um, David, and, and I, it doesn't say this is a psalm of David, but it is believed that this is a psalm of David. It has very similar language to many of his psalms, and I, I am in the camp that this is David, so I'm, I'm going to assume a little bit there. But what we just read from, from him... It shows us what is great, and rather who is great, and how we should respond to greatness. So in verse 1 we see, O come, let us. O come, let us. Now this is an invitation, rather it's a call. Let us is a, is a command to approach. We are, we are commanded, we are called to approach, and notice it's plural, don't overlook that, by the way. Beloved, you know, with you guys, you hear me say this all the time, how you know, even the grammar of Scripture is inspired, right? Even the pronouns are inspired. The, the pro pronouns are so important when we're trying to understand what the Bible's saying. And, you know, our ingrained Americanized kind of individualism doesn't help here, but sometimes we lose sight of the corporate nature of worship, the, the pluralistic, everyone altogether nature of coming to God. And that, that's something that Israel did not seem to struggle with the way we tend to today. In this day, you know, people think you can be faithful as a Christian but never come to church. Um, or they think that you can worship God while sitting at home and sticking with your TV preacher or, you know, whatever. But Whenever we see the worship of God in the Bible, more often than not, it is a corporate matter. It is a coming together of believers type of thing. It is an action. Worship is something that, 
that provokes commonality, it provokes brotherhood, it provokes togetherness among those who are really in the faith. We, we live, you know, God is, is a relational being, and He has created us to be relational beings, and He has created us to glorify Him relationally together. So the psalmist writes, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. So these are plural nouns. This is a together type of thing. We are to worship God together, the Lord God, and we are given a reason why He is the rock of our salvation. That's something that was true for Israel. It's, it's, it's for, for whom this was being written. And of course that's true for us as well. Israel had been rescued from Egypt. They had been preserved through the wilderness, preserved even through disobedient centuries under the judges. Um, And now under David, they are beginning to know what it feels like to be a little bit victorious in life. God had saved them, and and that was reason to sing for joy, to shout joyfully. Um, And again, pay attention to that language because it's the language of emotion. And further, it's the language of a compelled response. David was calling on Israel (coughs) to be compelled to shout with joy on the basis of what God had done for them. When is the last time you shouted? Um, Me, not so long. uh, Because I tend to have reason to shout every now and then in my home. But for some of you, it may have been a longer time. Um... You know, when I shout these days, it's usually because uh, there was toothpaste left all over the bathroom and things like that. But we will move on from that. We don't shout, though, because we're unemotional, do we? (laughs) Don't take it personally. I'm just, I'm just, yeah. We had it. Actually, I did not shout about that. I simply. because we were leaving. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, the nation of Israel, you know, when we shout, we're emotional, you know. We don't shout because, you know, we're morose and uh, cold. The nation of Israel here is being called upon to sing. You know, they had a, a VBS song. I keep hearing VBS songs in my house even, what, two months after that. Sing and shout, right? They're going to sing it on the way home now. But uh, that, that's a, a vigorous, positive emotion toward God. And that's what Israel is being called to do here. So verse 2 continues, Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. So the, the basic principle here for corporate worship, the worship of God with joy, with compelled emotion, it's reiterated here with one significant addition. We are to worship Him without delay. Um, the Hebrew word, which uh, I typed out, <laughs> But autocorrect changed it to a different word, so I'm not going to tell you what it was because I can't remember exactly what it was. But the Hebrew word there for let us come is literally to make haste, to hurry up. We are to hurry up. We are to be in a hurry to come to God. We are to be eager with excitement, eager with anticipation to come before God with others. Beloved, does that sound like how we often think about coming together with the church? You know, today, you know, and I know I realize I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit because you guys are faithful every week to be here, even on Wednesday nights. But today, so many people complain about having to come to church. 
having to get up early on Sunday morning when most people get up earlier at least five other days a week than they do on Sunday morning. But you, you don't know how many times as a pastor I've heard that kind of excuse for why someone won't worship with us on Sunday morning or, or why someone misses. It's so common. But what this really is exposing is not our physical fatigue, but how little value we put on worshiping God together. Uh, to read verses 1 and 2 here, any semblance of hesitation, any semblance of dissatisfaction or delay when it comes to worshiping God is antithetical to what it means to worship Him at all. We must hurry up to be before God. That's what's being said here. We must hurry. We must be thankful. Hurry with thanksgiving. Be quick to come before God and why? To thank Him for all He is. To thank Him for all He's done. For, to thank Him for all He is doing. Shout joyfully with psalms. Which brings up another matter. You know, we got two kinds of, 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 of language that were... Maybe language isn't the right word, but you've got poetry and prose. And too often... Our worship is limited to prose. Of course, our hymns are, are, are poetic to a point, but God calls us on, on us even to be creative in how we worship Him. He, he has created, and it should inspire in us ways in which to worship Him. Of course, it all has to line up with the Word of God here. Okay, Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, that we go off half-cocked on some, some thing that, that takes us away from the Word of God. But the point is, it should drive us emotionally. What God has done should drive us emotionally to want to be with others and worship Him. Okay? And if that doesn't happen, that's a problem. That's a heart problem. And we need to go to God with that. Verse 3 says, For the Lord... Why would we do this? For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. You know, movies aren't great. God is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, there's a DVD I want to get that just came out from a movie Joshua and I saw twice in the springtime. Really looking forward to getting it and watching it again. But movies aren't great. God is great. Songs aren't great. God is great. Sports teams aren't great. God is great. My barbecue sandwich wasn't great. God is great. <laughs> Understand what I'm saying here. The Lord God, Yahweh, is great. He's a great God, a great King. Not only great for who He is, but great for what He does. And greater than other gods is what the psalmist writes. And when we think of other gods in the Old Testament, we think of, you know, you got uh, Baal. We see him pop up from time to time. You got the Asheroth and uh, with Samson and the Philistines, it was Dagon. And that's what we kind of think of in the Old Testament. But we've got all kinds of idols of our own, right? we got money, jobs, relationships, security, you know, preferences. You know, some people idolize cars. I've never understood that personally. Uh, they can get messed up so easily. Uh, uh, I, I speak as one who has three cars and all three need to be in the shop right now. Uh, but God is greater than all those things. Uh, God is a great king. God is a great ruler. And verse 4 tells us what he rules. Look at verse 4 again. In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. Bottom line, everything is his. 
all of creation is is God's. The depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains, that's as high and as low as you can get. From the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, it's all His. He's a great king ruling over His creation. He owns it. It it belongs to Him. He made it. Verse 5, the sea is His, for it is He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. It's a little bit like Psalm 139 that I read from, I guess it was last week, or maybe it was Sunday. You know, there's nowhere we can go to get away from God. You know, if we go up to heaven, He's there. If we go down to Sheol, He's there. Um, he, he's everywhere, and it's all His. And this is the same God who is the rock of our salvation. The same God who, you know, the God of Israel is the God of creation. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord of all. And we are to be in a hurry to worship Him. God's people should always consider worshiping Him the purest of joys to worship Him. And so David writes in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So that the, the invitation is reiterated there. And David uses three phrases. You know, let us come, uh, kneel, bow. Three things to, t- to tell us what to do here. First, uh, let us come worship. That is, you know, let us come before someone who is greater than ourselves. You know, even as a pastor, I can fall into this trap. You know, I've got my plans for a Sunday morning. I've got my plans for a Wednesday evening. And, man, I I tell you, you know, people will be saying this to me coming in or having this question and whatnot, and I can get so distracted by by the time I'm preaching, you know... (laughs) I've lost sight of what's the most important thing. That's, that can happen even for a pastor. Trust me, it can happen even for a pastor. We've got to focus on the one who's greater than ourselves. Because Worship can't be all about me. Worship can't be all about you. Worship's got to be all about Christ. Worship's got to be all about the Lord. Second, we've got to bow down. We've got to come. We, we, we're here to worship someone greater than ourselves, so we come and lower ourselves before the one who is higher. And third, let us kneel. Let us come on our knees. At, you know, humility before the one we are to honor. For the Lord is our maker. Our maker. That means he, he possesses us. He, he made it. He possesses us. And not, not just the depths of the earth are his. Not just the peaks of the mountains are his. But we are his. He, he created us. He owns us. Verse 7, he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his Hand. In other words, we are not our own. We do not have individual rights when it comes to God. We may have individual rights as Americans, but we don't have individual rights as it comes to God. We belong to Him. We don't get to dictate policy. We are not God. We are not great. We are not worthy of worship. We are sheep. We are, we are dumb. We are def- dependent. We are helpless, defenseless. And we are in complete need of our shepherd. So when God, our great king and shepherd, calls, what will happen? Verse 7 and end of verse 8. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. What this was, the nation of Israel had a long history of rejecting the voice of their great king. They hardened their hearts in Exodus 17 which that account is just stunning to me because 
Exodus 17 comes right after Exodus 14 where God brings them through the water of the Red Sea. God saves them from annihilation or even maybe worse, being brought back to Egypt and put back into slavery. Uh, They rejected God practically right after He saved them in the most miraculous way possible uh, that had ever been seen up to that point. And and so what happened? They quarreled with Moses because there was no food or water. They'd been delivered through water, but still they didn't trust the God who delivered them through the water to provide them water. So they quarreled with Moses, and the name uh, was called Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord. That's in Exodus 17. Massa means test, and Meribah means temptation. Uh, Moses, though, was no better than his countrymen. When I say that, I mean in Numbers 20, he's told, speak to the rock, and water's going to come out. What does he do? He takes the rod and he hits it twice instead. What he does there is he shows a lack of faith on his part. He, he, he doesn't trust in the word of God, but he goes his own way. So that place is also called Meribah because he tested the Lord. Temptation tested the Lord. Uh, he gave in to the temptation not to trust. And of course, I say Moses is no better than his countrymen, but we are no better than Moses, are we? Because we drink from the waters of strife and quarreling all the time. We drive from the uh, we, we we drink from the waters of temptation. We we are uh, so tempted and we fall into temptation to to not trust God, to to not trust His word, to not but but to go our own way, to 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 think our own way, to to follow our own preference. Um, and so we're just like that. And, and I bring that up because when this is written in the Psalms here, today if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a warning. Because the unbelief of Israel, even after they had seen His work, resulted in that generation of Israelites, the ones who came out of Egypt, not going into the promised land, but dying in the wilderness after 40 years. For... For uh, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. None of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, went into the promised land. Uh, and, and in verse 10, we saw, God says, They were a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. And when we, should, when we read that, we ought to think twice about the way you and I, we approach God. How do we approach the Lord? Because if that generation of Jews who saw the wrath of God revealed against Pharaoh were so obstinate, so stubborn, so as to to quarrel, to have the, the, the audacity, the temerity to quarrel with God and test God and come to Him without joy and without belief, how often might we do the same thing? Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, the opposite of worshiping God rightly is to harden your heart toward Him. So Psalm 95 is here to remind us, to implore us emotionally, worship God. We must, how, how do we worship God? We must hear His voice, is what the psalmist says. 
And where do we hear His voice? From the Word of God. From the Word of God. This is where. And when we choose not to worship God as He has prescribed in His Word, we might as well be hitting the rock twice with a rod. Because God is telling us exactly what He wants us to do. Stick to the Word. We must hear with reverence, with understanding, with acceptance, and ultimately with obedience. And we must praise God for His Word speedily, with great joy. Hurry up emotionally and do this. And when we get to thinking about what God has done for us personally, how can we not be emotional about that? How how can a Christian not get emotional about what God has done? I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. You go home and you read Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 13. Just read chapters 3 and 4 if you want to remember it that way. Quotes Psalm 95 extensively, okay? And in that passage, and I encourage you to read this, the writer of Hebrews takes this psalm about the right worship of the Lord and he applies it directly to our salvation through Jesus, okay? He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Where, where have we heard that? That's Psalm 95. Believe in Jesus now, he says, while it's still called today. Why? Because there's a day coming, and you don't know when that day's going to be, and it's going to be too late if you haven't worshipped Jesus by then. You know, Jesus, is, the psalmist is saying, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is our great God and King. Jesus is the one with the preeminence. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the one of whom it is written that nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1.3 um, he, he is the Creator. Jesus owns us. He is our great king. He is our, our good shepherd. And, and so now if we want to worship God, and we ought to be compelled to worship God together, we've got to hear His voice. And so we, you know, I heard a preacher the other day, preacher of a huge church in the Atlanta area, he says he never talks about what the Bible says in the pulpit anymore because he, he believes that you take away from Christianity when you make the word of the, the Bible the foundation of your faith. He says the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. I asked him where did he find out about the resurrection. We must, how, how many times does the word of God say we must, something along the lines of what we just saw here, hear his voice. Today if you would hear his voice. And God's not trying to tell us what to do through self-help books. And God's not trying to tell us what to do through little voices in our head. And God's not trying to tell us what to do with what draws crowds and what makes makes, uh, the world applaud us, okay? God's given us His Word, and that's what He's told us to do. And if we're not coming to His Word, if we're not hearing His voice through His Word, then what are we not doing? We're not bowing down. We're not kneeling. We're not really worshiping. I will say this until I die. The most important part of corporate worship is the preaching of the Word. And I say that not because I'm the preacher. I say that because we, that's where we hear His voice. A lot of people today equate music with worship and preaching as preaching. 
I say it's all worship, but the preaching it comes first because that's where the Word of God is proclaimed. And I believe that's what the, the Scriptures teach. And, and so we've got to be emotional about that. We've got to be passionate about coming to God together. That there's no place for cold, heartless, go-through-the-motions worship. Not, not before our God. So, so be searching your heart. If God is really great, be searching your heart that you are coming to God in a manner reflective of what the psalmist is saying here. That on Sunday morning you're not like, and, and trust me, we can all fall into this temptation. Do I, God, do I have to go today? I've said that in my own house. <laughs> Father of four, I, I mean, but God's worth it. He's so worth it. He's so worth our enthusiasm for coming together. Even when we may be an imperfect bunch of Christians. He's so worth our coming together to come rightly before Him. Are we using our heart when we come to God? If, 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 if this psalm teaches us anything, it's that worship can't be a cold exercise. It's something that when we consider the greatness of God, we must be compelled to do compelled to bow down, compelled to kneel, compelled to confess with joy the magnificence of the Lord. And I pray we will. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, and, and and just personally, I want to repent, Father, for any time where I looked at, at coming to church as a job because I'm a pastor. It is a privilege, Father. First of all, it's a command from you. But secondly, it is an immense privilege to be able to gather with other like-minded, those of you called to salvation, and to worship you. So, Father, I pray you'd grant to us a renewed enthusiasm for corporate worship. A renewed enthusiasm a renewed compulsion to praise you together. And of course, we can't do that apart from hearing your voice through your word. And so I, I, at, at the same time, I pray for us to, to be emotional about worship. I also pray that we be thoroughly biblical because when we let our emotions dictate everything, we get into trouble. We have to stay thoroughly biblical. We've got to hear your voice. May we be passionate about your voice. And may we live according to your word. You're worth it. You're worth it, Father. Your Son, Jesus, is worth it. Your Holy Spirit, who indwells all believers today, is worth it. And we pray in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power, that we might glorify you in all things. Amen.